Welcome to Inspired Futures. Um, my name is Ed Cotton. I'm the host and curator of this podcast. I am delighted to um, for episode two to welcome my second guest, uh, Mr. Gareth Kay. Uh, Gareth, who is the co-founder of Chapter SF, um, and has just in the last week, I believe, am I right, Gareth? Celebrated your fourth work anniversary. Yeah, well, we we celebrated it last week. It's actually as as always, we were a month late, which is genius. So you know, it's uh, it's a joys of trying to get a website out into the world, which we all know is the worst project any creative company can ever have. Well, absolutely true. Um, so my first question, everyone, is if we press a rewind button on Gareth Kay and and go back in history before we go forward, um, for our listeners, uh, what took you to where you are? today um luck serendipity um and not much of a plan to be quite honest ed i mean i was um born as you can probably tell from my accent like you in the uk i grew up in the north of england i was absolutely desperate to make it as a musician Uh, i was a drummer um i failed epically at that and so i was trying to work out what to do in my life and i'd actually spent some time at university studying economics and politics and philosophy, but I was really fascinated by economics. Um, and at the end of my kind of university career, I'm sat thinking, what should I go and do? And I did not want to go and do what most of my class was doing, which was either go into um, accountancy or consulting um, or into government and try to think about what could I possibly do that allowed me to combine the thing I liked most about economics, which is trying to understand why people do what they do um, at either an individual or aggregated level, um, and combine that with you know my love of kind of you know creativity and culture, and it suddenly dawned on me that um, I grew up in that golden era of British advertising, and you know when the ads were as good as, if not better, than the programs, so I went. I wonder if advertising might be something to do. So I kind of stumbled into the industry. I managed to get myself a summer internship in my uh, second year at uh, college. Uh, where where did you intern? Where did you intern? I interned at a small place called Harari Page, which no longer exists. So for those who know me in my dreadful fashion sense, ironically, I was working on Harvey Nichols, uh, the top end uh, fashion store in uh, London. Which must be the greatest mismatch of you know of, uh, of of people ever to a brand, but I learned a heck of a lot working there, and it was a great place because it was small. It gave me exposure to lots and lots of different functions. So I went in there technically as an account person, but I managed to get exposed to um, production and got really into broadcast production for a little bit. But then discovered this lady Patsy Douglas, who was just absolute superstar, who worked there three mornings a week as this thing called a planner. And I had no idea what a planner was. Uh, I just suddenly went, oh, my Lord, this is a, you get paid for basically trying to work out what people do, why they do, and think about what's going on in culture and try and understand how brands can maybe better find a role inside that. And it was like, wow, that's the job I want to do. So I was lucky enough to be given a job um, by then when I graduated. Um, I spent a couple of years there. But I was an account person, and it wasn't really going to be a place where I was going to be able to itch, uh, sorry, scratch that planning itch. Um, so I was lucky enough to eventually, after a long struggle of trying to find someone who would give me a chance as a planner, because <laughs> there just aren't very many entry-level jobs um, then as there are now. 
Uh, I managed to get myself a job at an agency called Baines Fair Sharky Trot, which went through uh, two very quick mergers to become TBWA in London. Um, I was lucky enough there to work with some great people. Chris Baker, who is one of the original conveners of the IPA Effectiveness Award, so he gave me a great data background. Uh, and Simon Clammer, who was the complete opposite, who was you know, very good at effectiveness, but was much more interested in the transformative power of creative ideas. So was lucky to learn from those great people. Um, I then went to an agency called Duckworth Finn Grubwater, just lucky enough to work with Gary Duckworth, you know, one of the preeminent uh, planners in the UK, learned a heck of a lot from him about um, all the hard skills, like how to do really good research and interview people, and the soft skills, like how to make a good presentation. Um, worked there for a while, worked at Lowe in London. And then in 2003, um, I decided that I was kind of tired of the UK and tired of London and wanted to chance my arm potentially in working in America. And I'd be going over on vacation to New York to see friends and then would go to Boston to go and see friends. I had some musician friends out there. And uh, one year, about uh, May time, I was out there with my wife, then was my girlfriend, um, and was asked to go and visit a couple of agencies while I was out there. And I met a company called Modern Easter for allegedly a 30-minute cup of tea that turned into a three-hour conversation that turned into a week later signing an offer to move over the Atlantic and set up the planning department at Modern Easter. Um, spent six pretty happy years there. Um, then was uh, convinced to move a bit further west uh, out to San Francisco and um, go to Goodby Silverstein and Partners where I ended up being Chief Strategy Officer. Um, and then after a great time where I learned so much at Goodby, um, I decided four years ago to go and uh, launch this thing called Chapter, which is um, a new type of creative studio designed to uh, shape soulful brands that can thrive in today's world um, of unreasonable expectations. So we're trying to build a different type of creative company that is more diverse in its creativity um, and is really designed to try and help brands um, really answer more objectively and imaginatively their most fundamental commercial problems. So that's an awesome um, little uh, journey through your resume and your and, and your early beginnings. Um, and I always find it fascinating to find that, that planners never knew anything about planning when they went into advertising and then they stumbled into it. It's, I think we have an awareness problem, Ed. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of problems. That's one of them. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that's, real, that's really interesting. So um, instead of you, you could have gone and um, worked for another agency, you could have done your time at Gibby yeah. and said, you know, let's go do something else somewhere else. What was the impetus to go and create your own thing? Um. I think it was down to a number of conversations I was having with clients and a number of the briefs we were getting for pitches, which essentially went um, on the premise of, here's your ad, now what's your problem? And I became increasingly concerned that we weren't offering the best advice um, to our clients to solve their problems. You know, We were designed to create advertising and create it really damn well. Um, and we had clients who would come to us because of our, you know, history and equity 
going, you know, if we need a good dose of um, advertising, good be one of the four or five places you call. And I would just sit in a number of new business pitches, a number of kind of client briefs where you'd sit there and you'd look at the brief and, you know, the client had written it with their brand consultancy. It was as flat as anything. And the ask was for some type of advertising campaign. And you would sit there and just go, it's like kind of looking at a paint by numbers picture, Ed, and you would look there and go, I'm not sure if this picture is right, but I'm pretty damn sure that painting isn't the activity you need to be doing right now. Do, do you do you think that the is, is is it about an evolution? Is it an evolutionary development? Is, is it like back in the day, advertising could have that impact? Could could yeah. could could make the changes? Is it is it about sort of? Uh, uh, about the train not being on the right tracks and it's sort of about a misalignment. So yes, it used to be the day you could go to your ad agency, they could do an ad campaign and it really made a difference. Um, now that is harder than ever, one. And two, there are many other things you can be doing to solve your, um, your yeah. business challenges and problems than an ad campaign. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's definitely a misalignment. I think there's a there's a, um, the world is different now. I think that's definitely a case. There's more different ways you can engage people than ever beforehand. But I think there's also a little bit of kind of back to the future as well. Because actually you look back at what agencies used to do, you know, in the 60s and 70s when Stephen King and, you know, Stanley Pollock were setting up, you know, the planning discipline, for example, in the UK. Um, you know, you hear all those great stories of how, for example, in the UK, um, Stephen uh, Stephen King and Jeremy Bullmore were working on the Rankovis McDougal account, and they were asked to come up with an idea to help them um, sell more flour at a premium price. Now, this is the days when color TV had just kind of you know become popular and launched in the UK. So probably the obvious answer would have been, well, we'll make you you know a really epic film that you know makes our flour just feel better, more vital, more interesting, more different than, you know, some of our competitors. But instead, they actually noticed uh, an interesting trend in the high street and the kind of rise of the uh, slightly out-of-town supermarkets So the kind of emerging of the, the death of the local high street and the local baker, local butcher, local fishmonger, and suggested as an opportunity they could do to go and create a brand that would create cakes of high street quality that were available in a supermarket. From that, they came up with the idea of Mr. Kipling's Cakes, which has been, you know, the number one cake brand in supermarkets, I think, since its inception in the 1970s, certainly there or thereabouts, and has created, you know, untold amounts of money um, for Rank Hobus McDougall. And I tell that story because what they looked at was the real business problem and the human problem that lay behind that, and came up with a creative solution that wasn't an advertising solution. In many ways, it was an idea that could be advertised. And I think there's been a real challenge in the in the industry over the last, it's been a slow, slow challenge over the last, I think, 40, 50 years, where um, not only has um, there been, I guess, um, increased specialization of what you can do in terms of marketing channels, so, you know, all the different channels that have emerged over the last 30, 40 years from commercial radio to satellite TV all the way through to all the stuff we know and love now and use every day on the internet. 
um, but also there's been this kind of rise of silos inside client organizations and amongst the companies that advise them that have kind of created this kind of curse of specialization where, you know, if you ask the marketing person nowadays, they're really the advertising person and they're going to do what they know how to do, what they're probably being compensated for in many ways. And they're just not really able to kind of zoom out to a level where they can look at what might the most, what might the most imaginative answer be to solve the problem that they're facing as a business at that time. So I think there's definitely to your point that kind of, you know, the realities of the future, but I think there's also, we've kind of lost a little bit of our way to offer that kind of uh, advice at 30,000 feet um, yeah. that we used to do very, very well. And we're not compensated for that. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, what, what I think, what I think is what interests me a lot is it, there's almost this sort of myopia, myopia, myopic focus on the short term and um, also a real lack of discipline. Um, I mean, I, I sort of feel when it comes to creative awards, there ought to be some sort of forensic analysis into the um, viability of the business. Or, you know, if we're in business to help business make an impact, yeah. and you don't really that doesn't really happen or the, the 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 numbers are spurious at best i mean state street and fearless girl i mean that's no i mean yes it got the company some headlines and you can argue that's a really amazing job given how kind it is to do today yeah but the fundamentals of that business um you know are, are more challenged than they've ever been yes. um and uh, you know then you've got ge i mean how many awards did ge win um, yeah. you know, and, and that was a, ultimately a, fa a failing business. And then um, we got the debacles of uh, Kraft Heinz in the last week. Yes. Um, so what, what what's going wrong? Are people in, unable to, is the future happening too fast? I think, you know, you look at it and go, yes, I'm sure we are living in accelerated times and there is lots and lots of data that would suggest that and you know lots of books by very eminent uh, economists like Thomas Friedman and writers like Thomas Friedman that would you know build a very strong case that that is a case and I, don't, I don't think that is um, in dispute I think the real danger is the kind of horizon that businesses look like to your point earlier Ed has become shorter and shorter and shorter and when you I think um, combine that with a culture that is accelerating, you get into a very, very dangerous place. And uh, I think there's also just, you know, so on top of that, I think there is a lot of change going on. I think, unfortunately, there's still a muscle memory amongst most marketers. Um, that's a very sweeping statement. I think it's true. And in a lot of agencies, which is essentially let's make next year look 4% different to what we did last year. And there's no real sense of where is the world going and how can we begin to position, you know, our business and our brands in a way that builds a bridge to that future. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, it also seems like this sort of social media and, you know, it started with the rise of the viral video and you've got, you know, stories like, 
you know, that become myth, mytho, mythological almost, like the Dollar Shave Club. You know, the guy yeah. made a video. He made that the video made a turned into a billion dollar company, and um, so this idea of the sort of the quick fix that somehow there's a formula, there's a protocol that you can go through and you can get out of your problem really, really fast. I think there's a lot of confusion as to, you know, really what is that? There are actually, at the end of the day, no real quick fixes. Um, Correct. I mean, I put something last night up on, you know, it was very fashionable, um, to bash Best Buy, oh yeah, Best Buy are going to be the next retail casualty. You know, yes. they're going to they're going to Amazon's juggernaut is going to roll over them, and Best Buy will be dead like all the other guys in the space. But lo and behold, without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of crazy viral videos, without a lot of amazing creative awards, Best Buy has gone about its business and survived and is actually thriving. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I just I just wonder, um, you know, Weight Watchers and there's another one, you know, yeah. there was there was like a bunch of work done um, and just turned in terrible, terrible results at the beginning of the week. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, there's a unfortunately, you know, I think there's definitely the, the future speeding up. But I think the biggest impediment to business nowadays is you know, the quarterly reporting pressures. And even if you're not a public company and you're not reporting quarterly, the pressure still exists inside the way those businesses are run. And so they do measure success in uh, increments of quarters as perhaps looking at the stuff that actually can help, you know, really build that longer-term platform for you as a brand. And the reality is, I think the answer is, it's, it's the danger is we look for that world of black and white, don't we? And it's kind of like, is it this or this rather than actually going the world's really gray it's probably more of a case of it's this and it's doing this Absolutely. and i think that's just the real danger so you get into these horrible debates around you know are you uh, an agency that you know creates culture or an agency that creates collateral as david golding talked about and i think the reality is is that you know good agencies and good brands should be able to go and do both but i do think we've lost touch with the slower stuff that makes businesses work. And honestly, the slower stuff that actually culture moves at. I think, you know, there's lots of froth on the surface that we see. And I think the the trick is to see past that froth and try and understand where are the kind of ocean currents breaking towards and what's really going on there. Mm. So, so, so say for, just, just give us some, a little bit of, of, of how, you know, what's interesting about, about you, Gareth, is you've got, you had a ton of interesting experience and a lot of that experience has been at creative agencies. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that the creative product doesn't matter. It's just, it's just that the creativity can be angled and, and focused in, in different areas. Yes. But when you get a brief, when, you know, what, like, first question would be an interesting one, which, what's the best brief, not, not what's the best brief you've ever gotten, but what's the, the ideal brief that you love to get come across your desk from a client? Um, I will de-brand the brief because I'm probably not allowed to say it out loud, but it was um, an established brand that was seeing some, I would say, static to slow decline in their business. And the brief is one sentence which said, if we were to open our blank business today, what would it look like? And it's incredibly open-ended, but what was magical about that? It goes, basically, all bets are off. 
Don't get yourself too constrained by the routes of what we're doing today. And please come back with an answer that can take um, the sh- whatever shape is best to go and solve that solution. And I think that's the difference between you know, the type of briefs we get when we're lucky, but we get more often than not nowadays, and the briefs that perhaps I got in the world of advertising agencies, which would often have, you know, at the start of it, some kind of um, uh, cry and ask for real innovation and, you know, not just a creative idea, but a creative business idea. I remember that phrase very well from mm-hmm. Volkswagen about 10 years ago, it could be, uh, or what, eight years ago, it could be. Um, but the reality was what they meant was, can we have a, a good advertising campaign, please? And, you know, most of the briefs were around, you know, um, there's, there was no sense, Ed, of doing that kind of classic thing that you used to have to go and do, which went, here's what our business objectives are, here's what our marketing objectives are, and therefore here's what the role of advertising is. There was literally, it was just like, we have these, we have this problem, please deliver me four pounds of advertising to solve it. Mm. Uh, when I think you start, when you're asked or when you're built as a company to move um, channel or, or specialization forward rather than working from the human problem and human beings backwards that's when the problems begin to occur and you know that sounds incredibly basic it is essentially marketing 101 but it's been forgotten about we've time we've kind of forgotten about people what they're trying to do where they're going and the world that they're navigating in nowadays and that to me is, I think, the most fundamental challenge we face at the moment. And then, allied with that, is trying to break that quarterly time horizon mm. and try and begin to kind of get companies to look a bit further ahead. Mm, exactly. So, so you know, going going on to the topic of the of the future, yeah. um, you know, the fu- the future is kind of it's kind of a loaded word it it comes with like you know and we talked earlier you know before the call um about um sort of sci-fi and you know it quickly turns into jetson's land when <laughs> when really kind of what we mean is a, a, a time that is beyond now so yeah. um, when you're starting with a blank sheet of paper, you're sort of thinking about a trajectory. I mean, you don't want a business that's going to be dead in six months. I yeah. mean, you're looking you're looking at a business that's sustainable with a blank sheet of paper. What is it? You know, you, you've probably got, you know, you're not going to plan out a 10 year horizon because who can who can plan 10 years? Yeah. But you're looking for you're looking at the themes and the trends and things that are going to start be able to kind of. um, uh provide the kind of momentum for a business and that a a business can line up against and is that is that how do you you know when you're facing these these briefs how do you think about the future what's the future in that context for you it's a good question i mean uh, the question becomes uh, what is the future just literally in a time horizon what is the future and i remember doing some work when we worked with cisco back at goodby and actually asked a bunch of um cios and ctos inside organizations about um, how far out is the future to you? And literally, all our clients had bets. I think a lot of us had bets on, you know, it's going to be at least 10 plus years out, probably 20 plus years out. And the reality is, to most of these people, it was two to three years. And, you know, that's where the kind of, you know, 
big spike was in terms of, you know, responses. Mm. And I think that's the way we look at it is we try and look at about, you know, a three to five year time horizon. Mm. But I think what we're trying to find, Ed, and what we're trying to find is, you know, ideas that are as much as possible timeless and, you know, future proof and can guide an organization through today and tomorrow. But I think it's when you think about how those ideas come to life in the world, it's about showing that time horizon over time. And the reality is you want to try and get those businesses making some of those bets about the things you think are going to happen in five years' time today rather than waiting for them to catch them because someone else will have observed that or will be doing something similar. So it's very much that model um, that I think, you know, Google have used for their time, perhaps most famously, I know that Coca-Cola claimed to have done this for their marketing comms planning for a while as well, which is the 70-20-10 model, whereas, you know, 70% of your initiatives spent in the now, 20% um, spent in kind of the near, and then 10% in the next. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing of, you know, we've got to go and make sure we keep the lights on today, but at the same time, we can't ignore what the future looks like. And there's some great work that was done um, in publishing uh, the Harvard Business Review that just showed the kind of huge impact on businesses that were actually following that model and were able to actually, you know, um, invest some of their money, like 10 to 30% in the stuff they weren't doing today and how that paid off for them in the medium to long term. Yeah, um, it's definitely, you know, that's definitely a tr- truth about Coca-Cola. I mean, I remember that that was always part of, the, the the media thinking. What's interesting for me is, I mean, I was liked um, this idea of scenario planning, and and in the Peter Schwartz and this famous story that Shell, because it had a future foresight group, mm-hmm. actually predicted the oil crisis in seventy three or seventy two, wow. um, and I always thought, well, that's pretty astonishing. What are these guys doing? And you know. It was really a discipline of creating scenarios. As you said, it was not black or white, it's sort of gray. So if you have these scenarios, you could sort of plan against them. You are smart enough to know, um, you know, there there are multiple eventualities when you look at the future. And what surprises me is that's sort of gone away. It's sort of like, you know, it's almost as if uh, the attitude is we live in an accelerated culture uh, where technology is advancing at such a rate, we can't possibly predict the future. So we throw our hands up in the air and we sort of ignore it and whatever happens, happens. That um, seems to be the kind of modus operandi of a lot of lot of organizations. What I think is fascinating right now is if you look out across the landscape mm-hmm. and as an economics major, as they say here, um, if you look at economics, if you look at politics, mm-hmm. um, if you look at society, if you look at, corporate structures if you look at capitalism every single big idea is being questioned yes which which is absolutely fascinating i mean it must be you know it's um you know it's crazy times if you're a ceo of an established legacy brand and practically in packaged goods but but the reality is the same isn't going to work again no, and they're, and they're not prepared, I think, Ed, by and large, to go, our best strategy is to produce the alternative to what we're doing today before someone else does. Mm. And, do you you know, think- and I think that's that's the crazy thing. You're absolutely right. You know, People are asking, 
pretty profound questions about the way the world works. So if you're not going to offer that alternative, then chances are someone else will do. And that has to become something that is systemized as a uh, yeah. way of thinking, a way of doing, a way of being yeah. doing frankly, accounting inside an organization that, that isn't done at the moment. I think what's really interesting is a couple of things I point to. One is just that kind of, you know, I think you can look at the arc of a lot of those companies that have gone public who had, you know, amazingly innovative beginnings, but once they went public, kind of lost their way because they're suddenly forced to stop doing what made them successful. They feel they have to go and play the game like everyone else. They just lose their way. Yeah. Or worse still, you kind of get into that thing where we won't make it a systemized thing because our founders are visionary. So, you know, Apple, I think, is guilty of that. I think probably the best example is, you know, Microsoft, who arguably made one of the best bets in the future that you know really hurt IBM, which was, you know, there'll be a PC on every desk and in every home, um, which IBM didn't believe in. And that gave rise to the power of the PC and Microsoft's dramatic growth. And then fast forward, you know, 20 years or whatever, Steve Ballmer's in charge and he basically laughs at the iPhone. He goes, who is ever going to go and use that? And, you know, I think trying to make um, the future, the responsibility of a visionary is remarkably, remarkably dangerous. And I think it's that, you know, that great thing that... Um, Jimmy Iovine talked about in the in the documentary about Beats, um, the, the wild ones on uh, HBO, where he was talking about blinkers. And there's something, but it's a brilliant story, which is you now about why do horses wear, wear blinkers? Because you don't want to see what the others are doing. You just got to go and run hard and stay true to your course. And I think that's really true in many ways. But at the same time, blinkers can be dangerous because they can create tunnel vision, and you don't see what might be happening outside your world that can have a massive impact on it. So I think there's lots of stuff that is wound up and the, the systems and the ways that business work, I think has to begin to change to allow companies to experiment more and to place, frankly, more of a, a view on the long term rather than just what our quarterly share price or our quarterly, you know, OKRs are as individuals inside the organization. Yeah, I mean, I, and, I, and I, I think that's, you know, that's absolutely true. It's an infrastructure. It, the, the problem is with the, the infrastructure that was built for corporations when corporations grew in the 50s, 40s, 30s, whatever, all the way through the, the from the industrial age, the consumer age stood the test of time and did really well, especially when we had massive themes like globalization. And it was really about scale and, and, and producing on mass and mass distribution and, mm. and, and getting things everywhere fast and logistics was key. And, you know, you wanted the similar experience everywhere you went. Um, it's those platforms, they became, that became the platform, corporate platforms. One, one interesting example, strangely, I think, is a really, relatively recent one from a company that everyone hates right now, which is Facebook. And, yeah. and for Facebook to say, to make a declarative statement to say, if we don't literally stop what we're doing and make everything we're doing mobile, we will be out of business. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that is quite, I mean, that is, um, you know, from an organizational, uh, internal, you know, okay, here, here's now what we're going to be doing uh, is pretty significant. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 
you know, I think there's a need to, at least the, the, the good thing is, you know, there was an ability there to go and say things have, things have changed. We've missed out on something. How can we quickly reorient the company around something? Um, and that was a pretty amazing reorientation that they did around mobile. Um, you're absolutely right. You know, and, and you know, another another standout would be Nike. I mean, I would say you know, Nike is a legacy brand that somehow manages to um, to ride the waves of time. Yeah. Um, because they have, I don't know, I don't quite know how or why. I mean, I know they always understood the athlete, but they've managed to grasp the um, relationship people have with technology and how that yes. tie, how that ties into what they do, their activities, in a, in a way that, that no one else has kind of done. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's quite, you know, that's quite a change. I mean, to have uh, a business that, you know, you know, quite frankly, was built on advertising. Yeah. And their, their reorientation of how they go to market and frankly, their reorientation of thinking about what business are they in. You know, they're no longer just a footwear and apparel manufacturer. Um, it's, it's been pretty dramatic. I think the great question for Nike that I kind of look at them and just wonder about is, you know, are they prepared to keep flying unstable or is it going to be that thing where they're going to do, you know, the next chapter of their business every 20, 10 years, whatever it might be. And I think, you know, closer to the world's, you know, certainly that I live in, I've always been, you know, very impressed by the kind of RGA seven-year kind of, you know, um, burn and turn model where literally, you know, they will change the focus of their business every seven years to set themselves up for success in the future. And they, are, they refuse to be kind of, you know, constrained or handcuffed by the successes of the past. And I think that's just a really brave, but I think really powerful model. Sort of like a, a rebooting process. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And embracing that as being healthy, you know. So in many ways, it's, you know, what happens in nature, isn't it? As, you know, with chrysalises and all that kind of stuff, it's that reboot. But they're very, very, very um, intentional about how they do that. Could, could I could I just switch uh, questioning to something else that I, I think is an interesting topic yeah. right now? Um, Direct-to-consumer brands. So this is kind of like the thing a lot of people are talking about and, um, you know, the, the threat to big brands. Uh, my, my, my sort of hypothesis here is kind of, I, I don't know if I, I just want to share it with you and get a kind of reaction is what's interesting to me is um, a lot of these businesses, especially ones that are more focused on products. So I mean, you take away, uh, take Casper, for example, as you know, they, they wanted to make a better X, right? So a better piece of luggage. Um, uh, and, you know, Casper, in Casper's case, it's, you know, the idea of a sleep number is bullshit. Uh, we're just going to make the perfect mattress. It's going to work for everyone. And as they evolve over time, they decide that they, the marketing people come in and, and they decide this is about brand. And if we're going to stand out from the hundred other company, mattress companies, we've got to own something and we're going to own sleep. Uh, and then away says, no, well, we're not really a luggage brand. We're a travel brand. And Airbnb yeah. says, we're not really, uh, you know, we're, we're all about this belonging thing. And by the way, we're going to have another gazillion ventures. And WeWork says, 
um, yeah, we're not about co-working spaces anymore. Well, we sort of are, but we're also a health club and with us and that. And I wonder if they, if these guys ultimately sort of, it's sort of like corporate maturity 101, whether you go back and say, well, do you actually end up forgetting what you came into business to do in the first place over time? Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly your mattress isn't really that great. And you sort of forgot about that. Um, I, I just wonder if that um, the switch, the flip um, into the world, like the ad agency guys love, which is great DTC companies, you finally get the power of brand and the, the power of emotion, but you've moved away from way, what the reason you got into business in the first place. And I wonder if that's a danger. I think it is a danger. I think there's a danger of, you know, forgetting your, your roots, isn't it? I mean, I think that thing we often look at with companies which is you know yes cultural and you know human understanding is important but so is a bit of archaeology on why this company exists and why this brand exists and that's as important nowadays frankly for a three-year-old brand as it is for a hundred-year-old brand and i think you're right i think there's a a danger they get distracted and try and do too many things rather than be really focused on doing a certain thing really, really well. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I mean, uh, you know, anyone who's done like the research on Kellogg, for example, realized that this was a sort of, um, uh, and and you know, the Quaker Company and all those other things that are sort of a, a philanthropic, but also a, a, a we're in business. We're starting this business to bring nutrition to people, and people need need nutritious foods. Yes, and then they forget what what the, the the trick is. How do you keep contextualizing that and making that relevant to people over time? Because yeah. breakfast cereals aren't the way that people get nutrition these days. Back then they were, but so you sort of haven't kept up with the pace of time, and you haven't really thought about the future in a meaningful way. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think, you know, legacy from from legacy to um to um the 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 new startups. So, what what's your what's your thought on the legacy like so because there's sort of like legacy brands that don't get it and then there's a legacy look at Procter and so for example Procter and Gamble. Um interesting example where, you know, they own Gillette, it's you know, big competitive and shaving, everyone knows Harry's, everyone knows Dollar Shave Club. Now Procter and Gamble is saying, you know, we don't want to buy any of these guys, we're gonna develop our own thing. Is that is Procter an example of a company that actually is finally getting it? Um and it's hard to say because we don't know the inner inner workings of what's going on, but are there signals out there that they sort of get it? Um, and are making steps towards being a more agile, flexible, adaptable. Are they still, are they so far away from um, grasping the future or is their structure so rigid that they're, you know, it's almost impossible? It's really hard to say. And I think one of the things that P&G have always admired is they are, they built a structure that is genuinely entrepreneurial. So it's very much a case of, you know, as a brand manager, this is your business. You go and you go and run it you know, on your head, be it, which I think is where the, the danger comes. But I think you know, at least it's entrepreneurial. I think there is a danger if you're just you know trying to acquire yourself into the future that you're not really going through the process of understanding what it looks like and learning the skills that can be applied to your other businesses. 
Um, and I think that's kind of why I'd kind of like, I'm interested to see what P&G do, because I think they're at least going through the journey to go, we need to evolve the, the core nature of our business, rather than perhaps some of their more direct competitors like Unilever who have gone, we want to get scale here straight away and we're going to basically bolt on a brand that's had some real success. Uh, now, obviously, you can learn. If you build, do it right, you can learn from that success and try and use that to you know, imbue knowledge and learning and new ways of working throughout the bigger organization. Um, but they're going to be quite a small limb inside a very large host, I would, you know, argue and guess. So I think the P&G thing is interesting where actually trying to build those competencies yourself or maybe even better still trying to build partnerships where you can, you know, mutually beneficially learn from one another, I think can be a really powerful thing for legacy businesses and brands to go and do. Um, unfortunately, I just think there's a lot of, you know, ostrich strategy of people sticking their head in the sand and hoping that, you know, by the time it all goes horribly wrong, they're going to be uh, on their pension payments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what I just read about P&G, which kind of blew me away, was um, they are, they've all been to Lean Startup School. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's the most widely read book, and that's the that, that's the book they're all getting their heads around. So, what's interesting is it it flips their thinking from how do we market the solution to what are the problems we need to solve. Exactly. And they apparently now have 120 startups inside the company. Wow, that's great. That's great to hear. And yeah, you know, honestly, it's, it, it, I think in many ways it's them going back to their roots because you know. The Lean Startup is a toolkit. I think it's one of many very good toolkits. But what it has done is reoriented themselves around what made them successful back in the day, which was actually finding better problems to solve. So just as a just as a final, because I know we're going to wrap up um, uh, now, um, just just give us your thoughts on you know, I guess agencies had CTOs, technology was a thing. Um, it, it, where, where do we stand with digital and technology and solutions right now? I mean, is, oh. I, I know there's a long answer to that question. Oh, that's a load. That's a huge question, isn't it? Um, it's, I don't know. Um, I think as an industry, we got blinded by technology for way too long. It became like, firstly, the technique. So it was like, you know, we can make, we can make long video on the web awesome so it's like a technique thing yeah. then it became a genuine you know source of competitive advantage where you're trying to build more efficient technology solutions to go and deliver the right message at the right time to the right people i think that's you know definitely benefits in doing that it makes sense for companies to invest there but i think at the end of the day i think we're kind of over egging our role inside well current role inside clients organization which is you know are we really competing with, you know, the Deloitte's and the Accentures of the world who are doing the digital transformation um, and putting in places, you know, tech systems for their clients? And I think we thought we were going to go and do that for a while as an industry, and that wasn't the case because we didn't have the credibility or capabilities to go and do that. So I think, you know, technology plays an important role, but I think we vastly 
that old saying, isn't it? We vastly, you know, overinflated the short-term impact and probably under um, valued the longer-term impact. Is my is my sense on it? Yeah, well, it seems seem to be like on. it seems like there are sort of two routes to that. The one is to sort of infrastructure build, back end, digitize this business piece of it, and then there's this sort of programmatic um, yeah. uh, piece you, you were talking about. So those are kind of like. Um, the practical, very pragmatic uh, solutions. And then there's a sort of shiny object syndrome, which is, yeah, I, I think, uh, where creative... Uh, uh, a lot of sorry. sorry, a lot of creative agencies sort of were, uh, yeah. we're going to be the first that does the AR with the VR and then projects it on the moon. As a curse of the case study, yeah, again, Andy, we talked about earlier, you know, it's like you had to, every single case, you had to be the first blank, you know, and it got kind of to the point of being ridiculous. Now, there's nothing to say that technology can't transform the brand, but it's not the shiny object more often than not. Um, I think there is um, obviously value in the programmatic thing, although I think it's creating a world of incredibly homogenized communication and, frankly, um, increasing distrust and disquiet amongst real people about how much they're being spammed every day. It's like, you know, the most brilliantly optimized um direct mail mechanism ever created in many ways and you know if i get followed well i can't anymore to go out of business thank god but that slipper company that was following me around the internet was literally making my head explode um but i think there is still the, the thing that i think ancients have invested in nothing maybe and maybe it's just me being completely naive but i don't think we've invested enough in understanding through data um, around, you know, what people actually do and using that as a uh, new input to get to new types of creative ideas. And I think, you know, we are at the risk and most clients are at the risk where um, they're kind of data rich but insight poor. And I think we've got to start being able to use technology to help us build uh, better learning that's coming out from that data. Better and faster learning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a yes, wonderful pleasure, thanks, conversation. Um, if I can work out the 